So we're in the second week of our Christmas series called From Angels We Have Heard. We're going to be looking at scenes in the Christmas, the biblical Christmas story, looking at where angels are speaking to people. Last week, we saw the first scene where the angel Gabriel came to visit Zechariah, and he told Zechariah, basically, you, your wife, who's very old, is going to have a child. His name is going to be John, and he is going to prepare the way for the Messiah, Uh, Since that time, the text we're in today, about six months have passed. And though not many people realize it, everything that the angel Gabriel said actually did happen. So meaning that uh, Elizabeth did conceive, she she is with child, uh, she's six months pregnant, and now uh, Gabriel is sent to Mary uh, with the next phase of the good news of God to the people of the world, which again involves a child. So I want to start just by making sure we understand who Mary is, historically speaking. She was a young teenage girl, probably 13, maybe maybe 14 at most. She was from a very small town uh, called Nazareth, which was so small that at the time, uh, it was not on any of the maps. Uh, No one really knew about Nazareth. In fact, they couldn't really corroborate the fact that Nazareth existed until they found kind of an obscure reference in in a scroll at the time. So when you're thinking Nazareth... Don't think uh, like Prince George or Kamloops. You should think uh, like Dog Creek, BC, which is a place. I just went on Google Maps and tried to find a really small place. Dog Creek came up. Uh, when I was looking at it, Dog Creek, it was negative uh, 29 in Dog Creek this, this week, just below Fort St. James. Uh, interesting thing about Dog Creek, when you click on it in Google Maps, no pictures show up. So that tells you how small it is. No one has thought it worthwhile to take a picture of Dog Creek. That would be Nazareth, okay? There'd be no pictures, no one really, everyone just drove through, was, was not interested in it at all. So from that, we can infer uh, a lot about Mary's life. She, she was Jewish, uh, she was very poor, would have been illiterate. Her world would have been very small. Uh, her expectations for her life would have been to get married, have children, work the land, uh, probably never leave Nazareth, probably die relatively young. No one would have known about her or thought about her beyond her little community. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that God had other plans. Uh, To this very young, very lowly woman uh, came the most incredible news. Incredible for her, incredible for the whole human race. And the way that we can uh, sort of see the the magnitude of this news and what actually was going on is is through the the way Gabriel addresses Mary. When he comes to visit Mary, appears to her, there's a phrase that he repeats two times. Uh, And it'll be familiar, probably, if you know the story. Uh, Verse 28, he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then in verse 30, he says again, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So this phrase, the favor of God, uh, is one that we see throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the Old Testament. I want to just show you a few examples of it. You can see sort of how it's used. Uh, In Genesis 6, Uh, Speaking about Noah, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and so he was spared the the flood. Genesis 39, 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. 1 Samuel 2, 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And Psalm 106, 4, remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them. So even just from a cursory, kind of just quick look at this word, it's, it's pretty clear that to be favored by God is a good thing. And it seems to encompass a lot of blessings of God. His help, 
uh, his presence, even his salvation. I think it's not too strong to say that uh, the favor of God is what the people of God have been longing for ever since their fall into sin. That, that this is really what they've, they've wanted. And so this, this is going to be our focus for today. Understanding uh, the favor of God as it was revealed to Mary through the words of Gabriel. Because this is not just another example of God's favor. Uh, the words of Gabriel really lead us to understand the very nature of God's favor and what it means for us today. So that's going to be the structure of the sermon. Three points about the favor of God. Uh, but just before we get there, I think it's important that we understand what the favor of God does not mean. Okay, that, that Mary was favored by God or that God showed favor to Mary does not mean that Mary was then sinless or was in some way without, without sin. And I mention this uh, because on December 8th, uh, 1854, Pope Pius IX declared the Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception and, and taught it this way. I'll put it on the screen. He said, from the first moment of her conception, the Blessed Virgin Mary was, by the singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of mankind, kept free from stain of original sin. Now, part of the reason they got to this point, the Catholic Church came to this uh, misunderstanding, is because the Latin translation of our text uh, translate, translates verse 28 in this way. They say, uh, the Gabriel would say, Hail Mary, full of grace. Uh, you, you may uh, recognize that even if you weren't raised Catholic or part of the Catholic Church, uh, that sometimes the penance that's given, say, you know, 20 Hail Marys, three Our Fathers, that's what it's talking about. Hail Mary, full of grace. So they infer from this that if Mary was full of grace, that then she must have been free from sin. But there's a couple of big problems with this. Uh, the first is that to be full of grace doesn't necessarily mean that you are free from sin, that, that you're sinless. And we know this because uh, there's someone else in the Bible who's described as being full of grace, and that's Stephen. Uh, he was the disciple uh, in the New Testament. And it says this about him in Acts 6. Uh, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And he was doing amazing things by the power of God, filled with the Spirit of God. In fact, he was martyred uh, just after that because of his preaching, because of his clear teaching. So he was clearly doing some powerful things. But there's no implication here or suggestion that he was somehow without sin. He was simply ministering in the power and the Spirit of God. The second uh, issue is that the words in Luke, the Greek words, like in the original uh, writings, uh, they do not actually describe Mary as being full of grace. Now, I know this morning you were hoping for a little bit of a Greek word study, right? You were like, man, I hope that we really get into the Greek words. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so, uh, in the Greek, charis. Charis is the word for grace. And uh, in Acts 6.8, the word that describes Stephen is, is pleris charitos, full of grace. That's, a, that's literally what it means that he was full of grace. But in the text today, in Luke, that's not the same Greek word. Uh, when it talks about Mary as um, being favored, uh, the Greek word there is kakeretomene, which is to be a receiver of grace, which is a big difference. Okay, there's a big difference between being a receiver, a recipient of grace, or being a source of grace. Uh, to be a receiver of grace just means you're blessed by God. 
right? Anyone who's the favor of God is upon them or blessed by God. But to be a source of grace means that you have taken the place of God. And that's how we've got to the point where there are millions of Catholics who would say they trust in Jesus for their salvation, but still pray to Mary as if she had something to give. Now we need to be clear. Mary was greatly blessed by God, greatly favored by God. In fact, she says this about herself in verse 48. She says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So she was a recipient of God's unprecedented blessing and favor. But the point wasn't then that we should go to her for any sort of spiritual help. We should honor her as the mother of our Lord, but then go to God himself Uh, to receive his favor, just as she did. And what we see from the words of Gabriel is that the source of that favor is, is actually Jesus and Jesus alone. So, three points about the favor of God, what it actually means, what it actually looks like, the first is this, that God's favor is found in Jesus. Uh, we could maybe say they're only in, in Jesus. And so we're going to look at uh, the content of what Gabriel says, uh, verses 31 to 33, he kind of describes this child Uh, and what his ministry will be like. And so we're going to see the favor of God in Christ as we look at uh, these phrases one by one. So verse 31, Gabriel says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now just his name already tells us some important things because Jesus means God saves or God's salvation. And it's something we see uh, explicitly uh, in the favor that God showed to Noah. We see this connection between the favor of God, the salvation of God, because uh, Noah was literally saved from the consequences of sin, from the flood. That was the favor that he received. But we also see it uh, throughout the Christmas story. Every time the angels come and speak to someone, they, they speak about the salvation of God in, in what God is doing. So when the angels come to Joseph, we're going to look at that next week, they, uh, he says to Joseph, uh, this, this child that Mary's going to have, call his name Jesus, Same thing said to Mary, for he will save his people from their sins. And then when the angels appear to the shepherds, they say, for unto you uh, is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So there is in fact a direct line uh, from the manger to the cross. And we're going to see some of that connection explained today, that, that when Mary is receiving the favor of God and all that comes through her, he's really talking about the salvation of God. That's the first thing. Secondly, verse 32, uh, it says this about Jesus. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high. Now that word, uh, sort of phrase, the most high, is just a way of talking about God. Uh, from all the way back in the time of Genesis, uh, there's this priestly king, Melchizedek, and it describes him as a priest of the most high. And then John, John the Baptist, last week, uh, is described as a prophet of the most high. And now Jesus is described as the son of the most high. So the implication is that somehow, we're not sh quite sure how yet, but somehow Jesus, this child, would be more than just a human son. He would, he would be the son of God, God's son. And we're going to see more about that in a moment. But just so it's clear the way that Gabriel is saying, salvation of God, the son of, of the most high God. And then the rest of verse 32, and the Lord God will give him... Give Jesus the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, this talk of kingdom should hopefully make our ears perk up. 
Uh, because all fall, we have been in a series in Hosea, which talks a lot about the kingdom of Israel, which is also the kingdom of Jacob. Those two names are kind of interchangeable. And what we've seen about this kingdom, uh, frankly, has not been fantastic. Would you agree? It's not a glowing review of the kingdom of God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, all of the prophets in the Old Testament uh, basically spend most of their time warning people, hey, this kingdom that you're enjoying, yeah, it's going to fall apart. It, it's going to come to a crashing end. It's going to be overtaken because you've not been faithful as a people, because there's rampant sin. And so it's, it's going to all fall apart. But here, here we are told that Mary's child will sit on the throne of David and reign forever. And that his kingdom will have no end, which would have been very encouraging. You can imagine someone who knows the history of Israel, the history of the kingdom of Israel, of God's people, and hears this, and is like, that, that's fantastic. That's actually what we've been wanting, because we haven't really been a kingdom for a while. The Romans have been oppressing us. We haven't even been a nation for a while. So when Jesus actually began his ministry, he talked a lot about the kingdom. His very first words were, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you think about all the parables, a lot of them were like, this is, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what the kingdom is like. Prepare yourself for the kingdom. Get ready for the kingdom. So everyone would have been really excited about this, especially if they knew some of this language. It'll never end. This is going to last forever. This is great. This is what we've been waiting for. The challenge, though, is that even though Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom, uh, for the people who were following him and like with him, they would have looked around and they wouldn't have actually seen anything that looked like the kingdom of Israel, like the kingdom of David. There are no warriors. There's no throne. There's no crown. There's no nation being built, which would have been very confusing because those parts were the parts of the kingdom that people really liked. If you talked about the favor of God, that's what they wanted. They wanted an army to feel secure and to beat down the Romans. They wanted a sense of identity. They wanted a king they could look to. All those things, they would be like, yeah, that's, that's the favor of God. But they didn't see any of that. They, they would have maybe asked amongst themselves, like, what, what kind of a kingdom actually is this? They were very confused. Even when Jesus was about to go to the cross and die for the sins of the people and, and save us, and even though he told his disciples, look, this is what's going to happen, just so you know. This is what's coming. Even at that moment... When the authorities came to arrest Jesus, which should not have been a surprise, what does Peter do? He digs out his sword, starts jabbing people in the ear. Why? Because that's, because that's what you do for a king, right? That's what King David would have done. His mighty men would have done that, defend the king. That's the kind of kingdom that they're thinking. And Jesus had to be like, Peter, chill. It's not, you, that's not the kind of kingdom I'm talking about. Haven't, haven't you realized? He, here's how he speaks about uh, the kingdom. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke 18, 17, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, he, he speaks about a kingdom of the heart. That's really what he spends all his time explaining to people. It's a kingdom that will begin as an internal reality. A kingdom that manifests itself first in the conviction and faith of the people. You're not going to see it in the tangible reality yet. And the question, of course, is, well, why? Why do it that way? Like, why, why, not, why not the armies? Why not the throne? And the answer is that the strongest and most vital kingdoms are always first internal kingdoms. 
they're always kingdoms of the heart. Think about it when people persecute the church. They always want Christians to renounce their faith. That, that's, that's the push, right? Deny Christ. Why? Because they understand that it's one thing to, to burn church buildings, steal church property, put Christians in prison. That, that's fine, but that doesn't actually defeat the kingdom of God. Right? To do that, you need people to renounce their faith, to go against the conviction of their heart because that's, that's where the kingdom really is. That's the, the foundation and the root, what Christ has done in each human heart. So a, a true kingdom is a kingdom of the heart. That's legitimate. That's what Gabriel is talking about. But the real question I think we should be asking is if that is the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, how can there be such certainty about this kingdom? Gabriel says it's going to go on forever. The reign of Christ in this kingdom will never end. And the reason I say how can we be so certain because up to this point, studying through Hosea, if it's one thing we've learned about the human heart, it's that it's not very reliable, right? Like that's the whole problem. That the people who are supposed to have faith in their heart, God following Yahweh, they, they're not. They didn't. They were worshiping other gods. They were in rampant sin, going to other nations, looking for help. And eventually God judged them because their hearts were fickle. Their hearts were corrupt. And so the question that, you know, if you were to hear Gabriel say this at the time, should have been like, well, what's, what's the difference this time? I mean, if Jesus is going to establish a kingdom of the heart, but we've seen that the human heart is untrustworthy and corrupt, what confidence should we have that this kingdom is actually going to last? Now, I'm not saying that the people then should have doubted Gabriel's message. That was Zechariah's problem, right? He, he doubted. But we could ask a clarifying question. In fact, that's what Mary does. Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to have a child. She doesn't doubt, but she does ask a question, which is... Uh, like, how exactly is this going to happen? Because, you know, I'm a virgin, so I'm not, just logistically speaking, how, how would this happen? And I think we could ask a similar question. Okay, okay, we believe you, Gabriel, that there will be a kingdom established of the heart. Jesus is going to be the king. It's going to be fantastic. But how, how exactly will this happen? Because we're, we're sinners. And the answer uh, is actually the same for both Mary and for us, if we were asking that question. And we see it in our second point. Our second point is this. God's favor is given through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Spirit. This is Gabriel's response to Mary. Mary's like, how, how is this going to happen? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So he said, this is how it's going to happen. You're going to be overshadowed. The Holy Spirit will come upon you which is a little bit ambiguous, but actually this is the same kind of thing we see the Spirit do throughout the Bible. Uh, think of Genesis. Genesis 1 verse 2 where it says, the Spirit of God hovered above the waters. It's describing the same kind of thing. Think, think of when um, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, descends in Exodus 40, the same, the same kind of thing. To be overshadowed, by the power of the Most High is to experience the presence and the power of God through his spirit. And in Mary's case, it made a virgin birth possible. Now, I've been thinking a bit about, uh, about this process 
of, of fertilization because in our house we were studying uh, Science 9, uh, human sexual reproduction, and I finally understood meiosis uh, for the first time, which is a fascinating process where the, the human cell has 46 chromosomes, but through the process of meiosis, it, it divides to be a gamete, uh, there'll be a test later on this week, a gamete, <laughs> Uh, which only has 23 chromosomes. And the whole point is that the gamete is the sperm or the egg, and when they come together in fertilization, it makes a zygote, which is 46 chromosomes, a little human person. It's amazing, it's fantastic, but what we're hearing here is that that didn't happen that way. That there was nothing contributed from the Father. And that it was the Spirit of God who through His power somehow conceived a, a human zygote within the womb of Mary that would be from the line of David, but without the sin of Adam. It happened through the overshadowing of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit enabled this mystery to take place. It's essential that we understand that this is what took place. And by essential, I mean it, it's core to our salvation that we understand and believe and affirm the virgin birth. It's not a secondary theological doctrine that we might kind of argue about and disagree about. It's not that kind of thing. It is central to the gospel of Jesus and central to the favor that God has for us because the gospel is that Jesus, from the moment of his conception and birth, was morally perfect, never sinned. And that he lived the perfect life that we could never live in our, in our constant sin and the crookedness of our heart. And then he went to the cross and died in our place and his death was an atoning sacrifice. And the only reason that it could be an atoning sacrifice is because he was perfect, unblemished. And all of this was made possible by the work of the Spirit. So what we see Gabriel describe here is really the, the, the saving favor of God, the beginning of it. And, and it's important that we understand that so that we understand kind of how, how this happened. But also because we can see that the, the work of the Spirit of God is the way in which God actually brings favor into our life. For the purpose of salvation, but also in, in some other ways. Uh, let me just think of it this way. The overshadowing of the Spirit for Mary was, was also a foreshadow of what the Spirit would do in each Christian's heart. So let me show this to you in, in John. John 3, uh, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. He's a religious leader of the time, and he's asking Jesus, hey, I how do I get into the kingdom of God? That's what everyone wants to know. Where's this kingdom? I want to get in. But look at the response from Jesus, which was really surprising at the time. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So what he's saying is that faith itself, entrance to the kingdom, uh, being a Christian, whatever the, it happens, how? By the overshadowing of the Spirit for each one of us. Uh, theologians call this regeneration, where new life is birthed within us by the power of the Spirit of God. That, that's what it means to be a Christian, that we are alive spiritually. How? By the work of the Spirit. It's a work that begins in us because of what happened in Mary, and Jesus growing and dying and being resurrected, now it can be applied to us because he did all the work, but it doesn't stop there. See, the work of the Spirit is absolutely necessary for our salvation, but it also continues in our sanctification. The Spirit of God continues to bring life, to bring conviction, 
and all of it is the favor of God, all of it by the Spirit of God. It's important that we understand the way that this is connected because, because first and foremost, theologically, we need to see how the atonement can be effective. But also practically, like, it's very important that we understand there's a huge difference between the work that we do in our flesh, like in our own strength, and the work of the Spirit. Because I think a lot of times we get those confused. I mean, I think there's a lot of us, myself included, who have at times tried to accomplish spiritual work, but it's been under my strength and my power. There's a lot of times when we, we try to affect spiritual change in the lives of people around us, but, but not by the work of the Spirit, but by us. And you, you might know what that looks like because you, you've worked hard to try to help someone else to see their sin. And the way you've done that is by lovingly nag them every day of their life until they finally understand how they need to change. And it may be that there is some change, right? They, they finally cave in. They finally... But we're so frustrated when in a short amount of time, it, it slips back the other way. And we're like, what happened? We were working so hard. We made it so clear. And it didn't actually last. Why? Because it wasn't actually a movement of the Spirit. It was them being nagged and nagged until they finally just, they changed their behavior, but their heart wasn't changed. And, and we didn't understand what, why, why didn't it work? Because we were trying to do it. And it's the same in our lives. Uh, there's many times when, when I've tried to overcome sin simply by uh, disciplining myself in my own strength, kind of white knuckling it. I got to change. I got I to gotta put this sin to death. And then I'm always frustrated. And discouraged because I, I backslide again and again. See, what Gabriel is, is helping to remind us is that if we want genuine spiritual change, we need to open ourselves up to the Spirit of God. That, that, that's the only way it's going to actually work to allow ourselves to be shaped and molded by His leading. Because that's, that's why Jesus sent Him to convict us about our sin, to lead us in truth. And, and so, what we see the power that would be able to conceive within Mary, the Son of God, is the same power that's at work in us. And so the next question uh, probably is, okay, well, how does that happen? I would like that. I, I, I can see maybe, you can get a sense that I've been trying to just muscle it out on my own. I've been frustrated. I don't want that. What, how can I shift so that it's actually the Spirit of God moving in me? And this is our third point about the favor of God. God's favor is only received with a humble heart. A humble heart. Humility uh, is absolutely key to all of this. You may have already noticed it. Uh, Mary's response to the angel was, was already showing signs of humility and faith, uh, especially compared to Zechariah. Uh, if you remember, both Mary and Zechariah did ask a question of the angel, but uh, the wording of the question reveals a very different hearts. So I'll put it up on the screen. You can see the difference. In Luke 1.18, Zechariah asked the question, uh, you know, how is this going to happen? But he said, how shall I know this? Meaning, okay, you say my wife is going to have a child in her old age, but how, like, how can I believe this, Gabriel? How, how can I believe that this is true? How can I know this can be true? There's a sense of doubt of him not even being able to really know and understand and believe that it will happen. It's different than Mary. Mary just, again, asks a logistical question. Like, 
how will this happen? I believe it will happen, but I'm just curious as to know how this will happen since I've never been with a man. There's humility there. There's a sense of faith there. And now, after hearing the entire incredible plan of God to, to impregnate her with the Messiah, her response to Gabriel is even more breathtakingly humble. Look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Just that last bit should tell us that her response is different, right? He didn't have, Gabriel didn't have to stick around like he did with Zechariah to teach him a lesson, to rebuke him, okay? Uh, Mary responded well, and Gabriel's like, okay, I'm out, it's good, all is well. So even that is, is a bit of a difference. And her response is amazing. Uh, to be unwed, to be pregnant, she would have known what this would have meant for her, have some sense of, of what she was going to endure. All the questions, the accusations, uh, the social consequences, maybe even she would have a sense of the legal consequences. So for a 13-year-old girl to say these words, let, let it be to me according to your, to your word, it's incredible. And, and that humility opened the door for her to experience God's favor in a way that she never would have imagined. Which should remind us that the only thing that is necessary for us to receive the favor of God is humility. All the other things that we might value in the world, think of it, money, power, status, reputation, all, all of these things that we think are essential for so much of the good things that happen in our lives, actually those things very often hinder more than help the favor of God in our lives. What we really need is a humble heart. We, we have to have it. Why? Because humility opens us up to receive from God rather than to resist his will in our lives. And, and that really is, is the challenge for us. That a lot of the time, God wants to bring favor into our lives, but we harden our heart, we resist his will, and so we don't actually receive from him. And just to give you kind of an example of what this looks like, I'm going to point you to a person in the Bible who uh, is known for resisting uh, God's plan for his life, hardening his heart, and uh, this is, of course, Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh, classic example of a prideful, stubborn human being full of his own power, his own importance, who resists uh, God's will for his life. And, and there's actually a lot of similarities at the beginning of the story between uh, Pharaoh and Mary. Uh, God sends a message uh, to Pharaoh with, through a messenger. Not an angel, but Moses and Aaron. And the message that he has for Pharaoh is, is pretty clear. Uh, let my people go is the message. Okay, Pharaoh, let my people go. Uh, but that message, that demand, God's plan, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, like Mary, it would have been very difficult for Pharaoh to accept that. For a couple reasons. Just putting ourselves in Pharaoh's mindset. Number one, that would have been a very costly demand. Uh, it would have cost him a lot. Uh, it would have cost him over a million slaves, which was a, a huge workforce for Egypt. So God's will for Pharaoh's life would have been very, very costly. Also, it would have been very, very demeaning. <coughs> Pharaoh, you have to understand, thought he was God. Everyone around him thought he was God. And now this other God comes to him and, and tells him, look, my plans are this, for your kingdom, for your people, for your life. This is what I want you to do. It would have been very difficult for Pharaoh. He would have felt very small. And Pharaoh's not used to feeling small. So unlike Mary, what did he do? He remained rigid, unyielding, 
To the point that his entire country was devastated by plague after plague. His subjects experienced trials and hardship, illness and death. And finally, Pharaoh himself died still trying to resist the plan of God. Even though he would, because he said to Moses, okay, you can go. But then he hardened his heart and he went after the Israelites, wanted to get them back and the waves of the Red Sea killed him. My point is that all of this resistance is actually a very good picture of us and what happens in our lives when we resist the plans of God, the, the, the favor of God. There's devastation, there's ruin, and there's death. Now you might say, I think that's too strong a comparison because he was an evil dictator who enslaved millions of people. I don't know you can make a comparison to us. And I would say, fair enough, the scale maybe is a little bit different, okay? But the heart is the same. The, the dynamic of God bringing a word into our lives and us resisting it is, is very much the same. Look at Exodus 8.32. It says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. This is repeated over and over again. Sometimes it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He seems passive. But other times it says he, he hardened his heart. Both are basically saying the same thing. That God, through his sovereignty, put Pharaoh in a situation where his hard heart, his stubbornness, his pride kept bubbling to the surface and pushing back against what God wanted to happen in his life. And it ruined him and his kingdom. And my, my point is, does that not seem familiar to us? Do we not resist what God wants to do in our lives because we think it's too costly, because we don't understand, we think we know better, so we dig in our heels and we fight back to the point that there is real ruin in our lives. Because here's the thing about God's favor. Very often, it does not seem very favorable at first. It seems puzzling. It seems hard. Maybe it seems ridiculous. I mean, think about the favor that God showed Noah. What did that mean in the short term? What it meant was building a giant boat on dry land. And all the neighbors would come around, ridiculing Noah. What do you got going on there, Noah? 50 years in, you're not done. No rain. You, you still want to keep going? It's, it's ridiculous. Think of the Israelites. What are, you, what are you putting on your doorpost? You're putting blood on your doorpost from a lamb? Why are you doing that? Well, God's going to... What is... You think that's going to help you? But why would you do that? That's, that's dumb. Why would you walk around a city blowing trumpets seven times? That seems, that seems really foolish. Why would Naaman, why would you go? He said, I'm not going to go into this dirty river and wash seven times. That's ridiculous. Right? To the people of God, Moses said, look up at this snake on this pole. It's going to save you. Most of the time when God brings favor into our lives, in the short term, it, it seems ridiculous. It seems foolish. Which is why humility is necessary. Because that's an attitude of, of heart and mind which says, look, I don't actually know what's best. I'm going to stop filtering the plans of God, the intentions of God, the word of God through my own understanding because I've come to the place of realizing that my heart is corrupt, my mind is shallow, I can't, I can't actually see what's best for me. And so Lord, I, I, need, you to, I need you to move. It's at that point when we stop resisting 
and, and thinking through and trying to figure out, I don't know if this is actually what God is saying he's gonna do is actually gonna be good. When we stop doing that, then we can actually receive from the Lord. That, that point of humility is where uh, we become soft. We become malleable, which is a word I really like, by the way. Malleable, isn't that a great word? Uh, it, it's used mostly to describe metal, right? Certain metals are very malleable, like gold. It's very malleable, it's soft. You can bend it and shape it very easily. Other metals, like steel, not so much. Very cold, hard, and rigid. Humility and malleability, they go hand in hand. Because the essence of humility is us saying, okay, look, God, I know I need to change. I can see that I'm heading in the wrong direction. I want to change, but I need you, I need you to shape me. I need, I need your idea for my life, your favor to come in by the, by the power of the Spirit of God and change me in your ways, not, not in mine. Jesus describes this uh, attitude of mind and heart this way in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, Jesus is saying it's the state of our heart that matters most when it comes to receiving the, the favor and the blessing of God. And, and the thing of it is this, we will not get the favor of God if we think we know what's best for ourselves. In fact, we won't even want it. Look at this verse. This kind of pushes it even further. 2 Corinthians 2.15. Uh, Paul's describing the nature of what it means to be a Christian. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, those who are Christians, those who are not Christians. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and the other a fragrance from life to life. He's saying to some people, this whole thing, this favor of God, the gospel, it just seems foolish. And, and from an earthly point of view, you could sort of understand why. A child born to a virgin 2,000 years ago who then died on the cross, that's, that's the favor of God. That's the good thing that God is doing in your life. It seems ridiculous. It smell, it smells funny. It smells like death. But to those who've been overshadowed by the Spirit of God, who've been made alive, it, it it smells like what it really is, life, freedom, blessing, favor. How, what's the difference? The difference is that by the power of God, we are humbled to the point that we can actually see things the way that God sees them as, as they truly are. See, Mary, Mary willingly received the favor of God and the life-altering plans that came with it because of the humility of heart because of the movement of the Spirit of God. And we must receive the gospel of Jesus in the same way. In fact, we're not going to receive it if we don't. And, and I would say there may be some here who haven't ever really received faith itself, like, like Christ himself, because there's always been a, a resistance. There's always been something about it that we just can't, we just can't abide whether it's the, the nature of our own sin, whether it's the fact that we have to humble ourselves and submit, whatever it is, we're just, we've never come to the point of actually saying, Lord, have your way in me. And so we've resisted the saving favor that God wants to bring into our lives. But the same can be said for those who actually have faith, who have come to saving faith, that there are many, many things that God wants to do 
And yet instead of being soft and malleable, we're rigid. Like you can maybe think of some areas where, where if you're honest, you, you, you've been resistant. You, you, for whatever reason, haven't felt comfortable taking your hands off the wheel in a sense of that area of your life. And it means that you're not able to receive what God has for you. See, the good news of the Christmas story is the same good news as the gospel story. That God's favor in Jesus is available to everyone, anyone who would receive it in humility by the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God. And the essence of that humility is that we would actually see things clearly, humbly. We would see ourselves in our sin and that we need help. We need to be changed and we would see all that Christ has done. Not as foolish or strange, but as beautiful and effective that as he died for our sins and rose again, the promise is for us as well. So my, my encouragement for us, as I, as I looked at this text, I looked at what Gabriel is saying, is that we would have confidence that yes, God is building a kingdom and we can be part of it. But that our entrance is not in anything we would do. But it's purely through the work of the Spirit who points us to Christ over and over and over again. And I'm gonna pray for us as we close that that, that reality might be alive in us. In every area of our life, in a specific area of our life, whatever, whatever we're struggling with, wherever we're resistant, that God would continue to be gracious and humble us in spite of ourselves. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for this, this young girl. Just what a, what a glorious picture of humility. What a wondrous picture of your, of your grace and your favor. That, that in your plan for salvation that began before the foundation of the world, this is how, this is how it would come to be. Uh, Jesus, that you came and that you were, you were conceived within a, a human teenager. It's, it's amazing to think of. And it's amazing to see, Holy Spirit, how you worked uh, to bring about that conception and how you continue to work. That in each believer, you, you made us alive in the spirit where we were once dead. I thank you for that. Thank you for the power. Thank you for the grace. We didn't deserve any of it. And I pray, Lord, for those who are perhaps have been interested in things of faith, wondering if in fact this is uh, your favor, your blessing, like the right thing for their life. I pray that there would be a humility of heart and they would be uh, able to see their need for the saving grace that comes through Christ. And I pray for the rest of us who, who have professed faith Lord, I pray for those areas in our life where we are still hard-hearted, still resistant, still stubborn. Your promise to us is that you will make us into the image of Christ. So please have your way in us. Please uh, help us in spite of ourselves uh, to genuinely receive your favor, to not question, to not doubt, uh, but to uh, submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit's work. And we pray in confidence knowing that you will bring good into our lives and greater glory for yourself. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.